Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature Kiwis, curiosity, and updating your beliefs. But first up, here's the news with James Miller and Therese Chen. There was much celebration at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory with the successful landing of Curiosity on the 6th of August. Thus begins a two-year mission where the 2.5 billion Mars Science Laboratory Land Rover will seek to answer whether the Red Planet was once, or is, capable of maintaining life. This will be achieved using a plethora of scientific instruments, including a gas chromatograph, a mass spectrometer, and a turnable laser spectrometer, among others. In addition to determining the biological potential through analysis of organic compounds, the rover will assess the geological nature of Mars by ascertaining chemical and mineralogical composition. The mission also aims to investigate the planet's surface radiation and atmospheric evolution. The rover itself is approximately 3 metres in length and has a design in part influenced by predecessors Spirit and Opportunity, launched in 2003. It is powered by a radioisotope, more specifically by plutonium-238 radioactive decay, enabling Curiosity to have an operating life of a full Mars year, which is 687 Earth days. Since the descent, NASA has continually received images via the rover's navigation cameras. Whilst in the early stages of the mission, the team at NASA has so far focused upon equipment performance. Discovered in Horn Island by Queensland Museum Research Fellow Dr Barbara Bayer and WA Museum Head of Terrestrial Zoology Professor Mark Harvey, the 1.04mm goblin spider has been given the scientific name Prethopalphus anambori in honour of the famous broadcaster and naturalist Sir David Attenborough. This brings a total number of species to have the privilege to six. In a ceremony in Perth, he was presented with a framed photograph and a signed publication of the species at the WA Museum. In his acceptance speech, David Attenborough has said, Naming a species is as big as a compliment that you could ask from any scientific community and I truly thank you very much indeed for this one. Head of the WA Museum, Alex Coles, said Attenborough was selected for his significant contribution to natural history and promotion of the world's biodiversity during his career, which has spanned for more than six decades, as well as his enthusiasm for nature and ability to make biology accessible to generations of viewers. Scientists from Georgetown University may have observed one of the first definitive examples of non-human subculture in Australian bottlenose dolphins. Within the dolphin population in Shark Bay, Western Australia, 
There exists a subset that perform what is known as sponging. This is a technique where the dolphin breaks off a piece of marine basket sponge and uses it during foraging. It is believed that sponges serve to prevent injury from objects such as broken coral and rock which may be present. In a study published in Nature Communications, ecologists conducted behavioural surveys, 15,000 in total, over a period of 22 years, and through social network analysis, found that dolphins which sponge prefer to be in groups with others that perform the same skill. That this tool use seems to be the basis of group formation is quite unique within the animal kingdom. In other taxa, tool use is usually exhibited by all members of the group or is eventually learnt by other members as a consequence. Sponging is normally performed solitarily, so would there be any payoff from dolphins that do this to affiliate with each other? Behavioural ecologist Janet Mann suspects that this may be due to sponging resulting in a distinctive lifestyle. Sponging would require the dolphin to learn where to locate the sponges as well as being able to break it off successfully. And so associating with other dolphins that did this may improve efficiency. The research team suspects that there may be other behaviours, for example whistling, which the dolphins also use to form alliances. The ITER project announced recently that they had produced enough material to assemble six of the 18 toroidal field coils required to build their experimental fusion reactor. The toroidal field coils are used to generate a powerful magnetic field that will contain the superhot plasma that is generated by the fusion reaction. Each of the coils will weigh around 6,540 tonnes. That's approximately the weight of 150 Boeing 747-400s. The strands of niobium-titanium alloy wire that make up the coils will collectively be around 80,000 kilometres long, about twice the distance around the Earth. Whilst the coils are the largest components of the reactor, there are a number of significant components which are yet to be developed and constructed. Scientists working on the project are aiming to be operational, or to achieve first plasma, as they call it, by 2019. A newly discovered invertebrate in Belgium is believed to be the oldest complete insect fossil to date. Given the name Strudiella devonica, the fossil is approximately 8 millimetres long and has been dated as 370 million years old, suggesting it lived during the late Devonian period. Should the researchers be correct without identifying the specimen as Hexapoda, the finding would help fill in a large hole in the fossil record. After an initial diversification approximately 425 to 385 million years ago, the fossil record has revealed very little with regards to insect evolution. What follows after this is known as the hexapoda gap, where insect fossils were scarce until 325 million years ago, after which many more insects began to appear. The more recent finding would suggest that wind insects originated much earlier and potentially diversification took place over a longer period than what the current record implies. The scientists have classified their fossil based upon the possession of a six-legged thorax, long single-branched antennae, triangular jaws and ten-segmented abdomen. The findings have been published in Nature.
you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now Nathan Sinclair with part two of How to Change Your Mind. You can find part one on www.diffusionradio.com. In part one of How to Change Your Mind, we talked about Bayesian conditionalization and how to update your beliefs given new evidence. Bayesian conditionalization requires three things your prior confidence in the belief before you update it, how surprising or unlikely the new evidence is, and how unlikely the evidence would be if your belief were true. So if you know how common a disease is, how likely a test is to give a positive result if you have the disease, and how likely it is to give a positive result if you don't, then Bayesian conditionalization can tell you how worried you should be by a positive test result. That's all fine and good where the prior probabilities are well defined, like rates of disease in a population or the number of black balls in an urn, but much of science isn't like that. What, for instance, is the prior probability of Newton's laws of physics or Einstein's relativity? That's the probability of those theories before any evidence is gathered. If God had decided on the laws of physics by drawing lots from a bucket, then this would have a definite objective answer. But of course, the laws of physics weren't decided by a lottery, or as far as we know, by any other probabilistic process. But then, what can our prior probability of relativity, for instance, be based on? Most Bayesians claim that the only answer is nothing. Your prior confidence is just subjective, just a matter of how confident you are in Newtonian mechanics before you make any observations. But if prior probabilities are just subjective, then there's no sense in saying that one person is right and another wrong. Science and scientific confirmation would turn out to be less subjective than we'd thought. When it comes to the probability of the evidence, things are even worse. Observations of light bending around the Sun in 1919 radically increased confidence in Einsteinian relativity and decreased confidence in Newtonian mechanics. But to justify the increased confidence in relativity, we need to know not just how likely we were to see that degree of light bending according to relativity, but how likely light bending around the Sun is full stop. To do that in an objective way would seem to require taking account of every possible physical theory including ones we haven't thought of yet. It seems we're left with a purely subjective judgment of personal confidence. If the prior probability of evidence is subjective, then different investigators given exactly the same evidence and who agree just how probable that evidence is, given the hypothesis in question, can still differ on whether that's evidence for or against the hypothesis. The traditional scientific claim to have found evidence for or against a claim goes out the window, Evidence by itself is not for or against anything, except against a prior judgment of how likely that evidence was in the first place, and that is a subjective judgment. Bayesians do have a defence here, known as swamping. In many cases, no matter what your initial confidence, repeated exposure to new evidence, more black ravens, more grey koalas, will swamp those priors, and everyone, no matter what their initial confidence, will tend to have the same confidence in the relative claims eventually. We all end up believing that nearly all koalas are grey. Even if the same observations increase your confidence and decrease mine, because you disagree about how unexpected the evidence is, we both end up eventually at about the same level. There are still issues which swamping won't resolve. Consider the following two hypotheses. 1. All koalas are grey. 2. All koalas seen so far are grey, and all the rest are blue. 
All observations of grey koalas support both these hypotheses equally well. The probability of our observations thus far, given hypothesis 1, is the same as their probability given hypothesis 2. The only thing that can justify our preference for all koalas are grey in general is that we had a greater prior confidence in 1 than 2 at the very beginning, before we ever saw our first koala or knew anything about them. Rationality, or less dramatically, reasonableness, now seems to come down largely to having the right prior confidences. Jumping up and down about other people's irrationality reflects a failure to recognise their different prior beliefs. If Bayesianism is right, then even at the very heart of science, at the heart of our best and most successful attempts to gain an objective understanding of the world around us, we are still reliant upon an intuitive and uninformed sense of what's likely and what's not. Critically dependent upon subjective assessments of how likely our observations are, it's not just the old line, garbage in, garbage out. It's more that if you start with garbage priors, you can be stuck with them, and there's no objective measure for determining what's garbage and what isn't. Another way to put it is the talk of justification, supporting evidence, confirmation and so on, is unobjective and unscientific tosh. The only objective rule is how to change your mind, given what you already believe. Where you start and where you end up is largely up to you. That was Nathan Sinclair with part two of How to Change Your Mind. You can find part one on diffusionradio.com. something you'd like to discuss, please just don't make a fuss. 
My daters are clearly in line. Every figure laid out just fine. Is there something that unsettles you? Perhaps from a personal point of view. I'll admit it's not easy to digest. But this material has been vetted by the best. There's nothing we can predict with certainty. But it's not gambling, it's truth's closest proximity. We're open to alternate theories as well. But come, let's prove them and bid our conflict farewell. Can you see the power of theory? You working for me and you. Every day and every, every night. Do you see it, hear the sound, do you know? Is it clear? Are you down with the power, the power of peer review for me and for you? If a scientist does bad stuff, peer review will call their bluff. That's peer review. Scare tactics may work on a few, but ultimately they just won't do. Use science to see you through. Just let go of your preconceived view. The truth truly is blind, exposed to procedures designed. Our knowledge can't be confined. It's more than. More than the sum of our minds. Can you see the power of period? You working for me and you every day and every every night. Do you see it? Hear the sound? Do you know? Is it clear? Are you down with the power? The power of peer review for me and for you. If a scientist does bad stuff, the peer review will call their bluff. That's peer review. That's what we do. Research for you. And that was the peer review players with the power of peer review. Next up, Julianne Popples spoke with Lindsay Gray about kiwis. The birds, not the fruit. Now, I understand you've done some work on kiwi birds over in Kiwiland, in fact. Uh, can you tell me a bit about their biology? Uh, well, kiwi are very unique, Julianne. They're ratites, so they're in the group of birds. That also includes our Australian emu, uh, the extinct famous moa from New Zealand, and of course the Madagascan elephant birds, which are also extinct, unfortunately. Um, but also the living ratites, the other living ratites, the rhea from South America, and probably the best known, the ostrich. Have I left any out there? No, I think no. you've covered pretty That's much all That's our ratite family. And they're an amazingly unique group of birds. They're actually sister to all the other 
living birds. They're a very ancient lineage of birds, the ratite. It's very interesting to biologists. Um, something very unique that they do is lay an enormous egg. Now, some of you probably know, in fact, probably all of you know how big emu are. Uh, ostrich, a little bit bigger. But uh, kiwi, you know, they're not as big as an emu, are they, Julianne? Yep. Uh, but they lay an egg the same size as an emu. They have the biggest egg per unit body weight of any bird. Hang on, the same size as an emu egg? Yeah. So how, how big roughly is a kiwi bird? <laughs> the kiwi is, it's about the size of a chicken, I guess, like a pretty booty fat chicken. Okay. Um, so there's actually five different species, but mm. they, generally the girl kiwi are bigger and they can weigh about two and a half kilos in the great spotted kiwi, which is the biggest one. Uh, they're a bit heavier. And the boy, I guess, is about a kilo and a half. Oh! Something fascinating. Mm. The boy incubates the egg in most no, kiwi really? species. Yeah, I think this is true for ratites in general. So the girl, she lays this massive egg, which would be like one of us giving birth to a toddler, a two and mm-hmm. a half year old. Um, she, you know, has to make the egg, which is a hard, hard mm. graft. Uh, and then she buggers off, and mm. Dad comes along and sits on it diligently for eighty days. Eighty days. How does he survive that? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, well, we're going to touch on the issue that Kiwi face in New Zealand in terms of their uh, survivorship. So the dad, he'll go out in the nighttime foraging and he can leave the egg for some time period, you okay. know, like a couple of hours at a time. So he goes off feeding with his girlfriend. Very nice. Uh, and this, of course, is when the introduced mammals to New Zealand, which are like stoats and weasels and things, like you all know what a... What are they that people keep as pets and they walk them around Centennial uh, Park? Like ferrets? Like yep. a ferret, yep. yep. Ferrets as well. Um, they, of course, go hunting at night time, nocturnal mm. things. And that's when they go into the nest. And if the they wait, actually, for the egg to hatch, they'll patrol the nest night after night, waiting for the egg to hatch while mm. Dad's off foraging. And uh, when the baby hatches, they eat it. And that's this, this process is causing... After all that effort, it's (laughs) very painful. It's a huge amount of effort for the mum to Mm. make the egg, for the dad to sit on it. Yeah, so 95% of chicks of all those kiwi species in New Zealand get nailed by introduced predators in New Zealand, especially these stoats. So are there um, efforts underway to try and control the predators and whatnot? There are, Julianne. There is an amazing program called ONE, Operation Nest Egg, which is run in New Zealand where the eggs are actually collected from not directly under the dad. When dad's off foraging at night, the conservation workers will go in, they'll take the egg and bring it back to an incubation facility, like the one where I used to work in Rotorua, called uh, Kiwi Encounter, Mm -hmm. which is a very lovely place to visit. Um, Visit and you can help Kiwi go along. Um, So they bring the egg into the incubation centre and they'll rear it there. So the egg will hatch, the chick will be looked after, and then when it reaches this critical weight, one kilogram, which is not stoat proof but stoat stoat hardy, it'll go back into the bush to the place where the egg was collected from in the first place. Excellent. And how hard is it to find a kiwi bird in the wild? Oh gee. <laughs> it's quite hard. They 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 use their calls. So the males and the females will call to one another. The male has a territorial call, a very beautiful high-pitched whistle. And what happens leading up to breeding season, which is about now in June, June, July, uh, workers will go out and listen for the calling at night time. 
And then, amazingly, they use a mammal, because with their brilliant noses, they use kiwi dogs. And in the vicinity where the calling has gone on, they'll take the dog in during the day when the kiwi are on the nest sleeping, because they're nocturnal. So, so dogs trained to pick dogs. up the scent of a kiwi bird. Exactly, specially trained dogs. Um, kiwi poo is collected from all the captive centres where kiwi are kept as sort of zoo animals and stuff. The poo is collected up along with maybe some feathers and things, and um, it's used to train... <laughs> special kiwi dogs they're usually like fox terriers smart um, terrier like dogs and yeah they're special dog handlers that their only job is to find kiwi and they'll go out and track the kiwi and then the 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 you know whoever's handling the dog will grab the kiwi out and whack a radio transmitter on the male very special radio transmitters which give uh, a different uh, signal depending on what the boy kiwi is doing so if he's sitting on the egg it'll give a special signal for i'm sitting on an egg back to mm-hmm. the receiver and if the egg is hatched it like lets off a different signal because the male's got off and yep the receiver picks that up and that's when the worker goes in and collects the egg well before just before it hatches actually i'm dying to know is there a special signal for i'm i'm having special time with a lady kiwi <laughs> there isn't for that julianne though they make quite hilarious grunting noises i'm a bit sad and i go on youtube and search like kiwi mm-hmm. emu emu dancing is a great youtube clip but anyway you can hear some uh kiwi getting it on in a, oh. a clip on YouTube. Oh, i'm going to be searching for yeah, some grunting kind of noises <coughs> yep yeah. bit of that it's very exciting stuff but there is a special beep that the transmitter that's put on the male kiwi's leg makes for when he's died it's called mortality mode (laughs) yeah so they're quite sophisticated these special transmitters well i hate to end on that note but (laughs) i've i've learned a lot about kiwi thanks very much Lindsay. you're so welcome julianne that was Lindsay gray talking with julianne popple about kiwi birds and that's all from us this time on diffusion you can send email to diffusion at 2scr.com That's diffusion at 2scr.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SCR studios or if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Nathan Sinclair, Therese Chen, Julianne Popple, and James Miller. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, 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 ha,